Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So as I mentioned in the announcements, Ash Wednesday this year does fall on Valentine's Day. And this is probably the earliest I can remember Lent, Lent uh, kicking off. Um, I, I haven't checked the calendars to see if it can happen earlier, but it certainly doesn't usually happen this early. And it can feel odd preparing for uh, Valentine's Day and Lent at the same time. Um, those of you who wonder, Ash Wednesday does get precedence over Valentine's Day. <laughs> Valentine's Day actually isn't even in our prayer book, though it is widely celebrated throughout the Western Church. Um, in England in the old days, it was a black letter commemoration on the calendar, but it doesn't have its own special readings or anything like that. Well, today's epistle is very appropriate for um, this week of Valentine's Day, as well as what we want to think about as we enter into Lent in our last three days of pre-Lent. So before we get into the epistle, I want to briefly look at who St. Valentine is and what his story can teach us as we begin our Lent. Um, it's pretty typical of some of the early saints who did not leave their own writings, but the accounts of St. Valentine vary from, from source to source, and there seems to be a bit of legendary material that gets snuck in there from time to time. What we know for sure is that he was either a priest or a bishop in Italy in the 3rd century, and there may have even been a couple of folks by the same name who were martyred around the same time. The most common of the stories is that Valentine was arrested for preaching the gospel, and then the judge who was going to condemn him had a sick daughter who was not expected to live. St. Valentine prays for the judge's daughter, she's healed, and then the grateful judge releases Valentine from prison. Later on, he's arrested again for preaching the gospel, and, a and he sends a letter to this daughter before his death signed from your Valentine, and thus begins the origin of giving Valentines on this day. As you can see that the love that St. Valentine shows, and this is consistent throughout all the stories, it's not romantic love, despite the fact that romantic love has become the focus of the feast day. Rather, St. Valentine shows his love for God and his love for God's people by his willingness to be martyred for the faith. In a similar way, our epistle reading is the love chapter from 1 Corinthians 13, and it's, it's also often misunderstood. Many folks know this passage mostly because of how often it's read at weddings, um, which is a bit unfortunate because, again, the love spoken of in this passage is not really about romantic love. In fact, it's not one of our wedding readings in our prayer book for that very reason. You probably noticed that in our prayer book and following the King James Version, we use the word charity there instead of love. The Greek word used in the passage is agape or agape. Vine's Expository Dictionary of the New Testament Words says that agape and its corresponding verb agapeo are used in the New Testament to describe the love God has for his son, the love God has for his people, and then to express the essential nature of God. And then having been loved by God, Christians are called to love each other. Vines writes, notes this, Christian love, whether exercised toward the brethren or towards men generally, is not an impulse from the feelings. It does not always run with the natural inclinations, nor does it spend itself only upon those for whom some affinity is discovered. 
That's why the King James in our prayer book uses the word charity instead in this passage. It harkens back to an older use of the word charity that encompasses what we call charity today, as well as what we call, much of what we call love today. Our collect sums up the importance of Christian charity, agape love, as follows. It says, O Lord, who has taught us that all our doings without charity are nothing worth, send thy Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, the very bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whatsoever lives is counted dead before thee. Grant this for thine only Son, Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. So the colic reminds us that biblical love is the foundation for all our good works. It reminds us that agape love is the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it sums up both Christian peace and true virtue in love. Indeed, without this supernatural love, our lives are really dead. To illustrate this, I want to look at our Old Testament reading briefly from morning prayer today that was chosen to accompany this um, our, our two passages that we just read. This is um, Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning at verse 12. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Listen to the way the word love is used in our Old Testament reading. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. So all the way back in Deuteronomy, we see the summary of what it means to follow God is to love God. He then goes on, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is, Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is to this day. So we're commanded to love God, but first God says, remember, I loved you first. I loved your fathers first and loved you because I loved your fathers. Then he says, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Um, this is covenantal language. Remember, the, old, the sign of the Old Testament covenant is circumcision. And he says, that outward sign isn't what's most important. You need to circumcise your heart and don't be stubborn. Don't be stiff-necked. You must be in covenant with God if, the, if this command is going to happen and if you're going to respond to God's love. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which, re- which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. So God shows his love not just for you, but for the stranger, for those outside, because God loves justice and justice is doing what's right by others is part of love and God himself does that. Verse 19, love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and thou shalt, and to him thou shalt cleave and swear by his name. He is thy praise, he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven and the multitude. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments 
always. So God loves the stranger as much as he loves you. You then love the stranger. And ultimately, because of all this good that God has done, you should love him. Keep his charge and his statutes. You see how it's, it's, it's a big circle. It all kind of works together. The, the love for our neighbor, the love for God, the love God has for us and our neighbor, it all comes from the same place. In the first book of homilies, which is a collection of official sermons in the 16th century English church, the fifth homily is a sermon of Christian love and charity, and it begins like this. Of all, of all things that be good to be taught unto Christian people, there is nothing more necessary to be spoken of and daily called upon than charity. And the homily then goes on to describe how all acts and works of righteousness are summed up in Christian love. And how the lack of true agape love is the, it says, ruin or fall of the world, the banishment of virtue, and the cause of all vice. And part of the problem is that we follow our own hearts when it comes to love, rather than following the truth set before us by God in Scripture. And that's really what our culture generally means when it speaks of love, following your heart wherever it leads. Um, we've all seen the Disney movies, and that's the big theme, right? Follow your heart. That's what it means to love. That's not what it means to love biblically. In his excellent book on marriage, the uh, late Tim Keller describes this kind of thing that our culture likes as transactional or consumer love. It's a love where each, church, each person tries to get what they can from the relationship, get what they want from it. By contrast, Scripture tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Don't follow your heart. It's going to lie to you. Instead, we look to our Lord Jesus to teach us about love. Biblical love is not transactional. It's covenantal, circumcising your hearts. We see that agape love, the King James's charity, is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We engage our hearts in knowing God, setting our affections on God, learning to believe his word, to trust in him, to love him above all else. We love him with our soul, that is, with our lives, devoting ourselves to him and to his service. Indeed, scripture tells us that we are to forsake everything else rather than to forsake God. Jesus said, he that loveth his father or mother, son or daughter more than me is not worthy to have me. We love God with our minds by studying him, meditating on his word, engaging in prayer and contemplation of God. We love him with all our strength by setting our physical members into his service. Our eyes, hands, feet, lips all belong to him and then should be engaged in obedience to his commandments. Those very commandments that we summed up just a few minutes ago when we recited the summary of the law. The first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first part of what we call the summary of the law given by Jesus himself. But you'll recall that that's not the entirety of the law or even the entirety of the summary. We're also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, illustrated in this passage from Deuteronomy. Christian charity, agape love includes both good and bad neighbors, both friends and enemies, the countrymen and the stranger. Even when our neighbor gives us cause to hate him, we're called to respond with love. That means responding with patience, kindness, and all those other things mentioned in the epistle. That's what our Lord Jesus taught us, and it's what he modeled. 
Again, uh, in his book on marriage, uh, Tim Keller notes that uh, when Paul commands husbands to love their wives in in, uh, Ephesians 5, you don't command feelings. It doesn't work that way. You can't command a feeling. A feeling cannot be commanded. Only actions can be commanded. And so when Paul says to love, it's a command. Just like what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? How does God love the wicked and the good? By those actions. How are we called to do the same? You see, one of the problems of the Pharisees is that they had redefined love to only include those who they deemed lovable. Like the Pharisees, our hearts default to the human religion of legalism. All human religion does this. And legalism always redefines God's law so that we can keep it and then look down on those who don't meet our misrepresentation of God's law. So we only want to love the lovable. We don't want to love everybody else. We don't want to love our, our enemies. Jesus, though, shines the truth of God's word in our hearts. He exposes those darkest places. He shows that our love is often conditional, that we would rather hold grudges than reconcile. And deep down, we're pretty much like the tax collectors and the Gentiles. But he does more than expose our lack of love, he models true love. He teaches us what that looks like, and then he shows us what it looks like. Jesus loved his adversaries enough to exhort them, to show them the truth, and when they refused to listen, to go off and pray for them. And he loved his friends so much that he died for them, even when they all abandoned him. Everything Jesus did was out of love for his Father, never seeking his own glory, but always seeking that of the Father. Again, back to Ephesians 5, when Paul tells uh, husbands they're to love their wives like Jesus loved the church. That's what he says. Jesus says that true agape love makes us children of our heavenly Father. Christian love is a spiritual thing, something that's beyond our fallen flesh when we're dead in our sins. We need the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit giving us new life in Jesus Christ if we are to have agape love. In his first epistle, St. John tells us that God is love. One of the chief implications of the doctrine of the Trinity is that God has always had fellowship and love between the persons of the Trinity. St. Augustine puts it this way. He says, the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is is their bond of love personified. When we're united to Christ, we're brought into the love of God. Indeed, God's love for us flows out of the love between the persons of the Trinity. How wonderful a thing it is to become children of God. What more could we wish for than to be adopted into his family, made co-heirs with our Lord Jesus? So as we head into Lent, may we remember the love of Christ that is to be our motivation. Remember that we love him because he first loved us. We're not going into the metaphorical desert to earn his love. We already have his love. 
We fast, we repent, we pray, we give charity, we practice love so that we can then let go of those things that blunt our love for God and for our neighbor. We discipline our flesh so that we won't listen to its self-justifying lies that tell us we're doing just fine on our own. We quiet the noise of life so that we can hear from the lover of our souls, the God who is love. We say this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost.